0: This is Trinity Western University's chapel podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in.
1: So if you have them, open up your Bibles to Mark 14, 53. Mark is one of four New Testament books in the Bible that recount the historical life of Jesus Christ. To set the context for you a little bit, we have already seen Jesus partake in his last meal with the disciples. He announces that one of the 12 would betray him. He introduces what we now partake in as communion, and he predicts that Peter, one of his disciples, would deny him three times. After this, Jesus prays in Gethsemane, asking God to take away the cross from him. Jesus is then arrested through the betrayal of Judas, and we come to verse 53. I'm going to be making comments in between the scripture, but Catherine will have the actual scripture up on the screen so you can follow along. So Jesus before the council, verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law had gathered, Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards warming himself by the fire. So right off the bat, we see that this rowdy gathering was held at night in the high priest Caiaphas' home. They did this because a formal capital trial was forbidden at night and during the festivals, um, which was Passover and the festival of unleavened bread in this case. So Jesus' whole trial was illegal from the very beginning, but still he went. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. So a little bit of context, Pentateuchal law required that there be at least two witnesses on the same page in order to accuse someone of a capital offense. The witnesses here are likely trying to use what Jesus said before in Mark 13, 2 against him. Here Jesus states, there will not be left at the temple one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. But Jesus wasn't saying that he would destroy the temple in this verse. He was predicting the destruction of the temple, which happened 40 years later by the Roman emperor of Vespasian. It's also likely that the witnesses were misunderstanding and twisting Jesus' words from John 2.19, where he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But again, here he was speaking about his own body and pointing to his resurrection. Back to verse 60, then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need any other witnesses? You've all heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. So here Caiaphas, the high priest, tears his clothing in a display of grief on behalf of God. This is a cultural statement people often did in response to death or outrage. We see it many times in the Old and New Testament. But high priests were only allowed to tear their clothing in response to blasphemy. And saying that you are the son of God, well, that that counts. Then some of us began, uh, some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was preparing to speak on this passage, I sent it to a handful of people and I asked them for their opinions. One of my friends pointed out how foolish the false witnesses had been since they didn't properly organize their testimony to match one another before this unofficial trial. I tried to explain to them that this would have been a chaotic scene, kind of taken for granted how much my uh, Middle Eastern upbringing and family uh, influenced the picture I have of this trial in my mind. So I helped my friend understand and I hope I can do the same for you here today. The scene takes place in Caiaphas' home, who was a Sadducee, an upper-class Jew. Under the ruins of the assumed house of Caiaphas, which now stand in Jerusalem, there's a room for flogging criminals where Jesus may have been standing. It had a trough etched into the floor to catch the victim's blood. So as you can imagine, the scene was rowdy, it was violent, and there were crowds waiting inside and outside just to watch the humiliation of Jesus. It wasn't some organized, orderly, like Canadian Supreme Court ruling where they had time to match up their words um, beforehand. But there Jesus was silent. Against the uproar of the crowd, he stood silent. His silence here was truth. You see, Jesus felt no obligation to make sense out of their lies. His persistent silence did two things. It expressed contempt and low regard toward injustice, and two, his silence fulfilled the scriptures. First, Jesus' lack of response to false testimony showed his integrity and devotion to truth. He did not waste his time or energy on lofty or petty comments. Lies did not break his attention or loosen his focus. This kind of reminded me of a time I was in grade 11 And I'd come home from school, and I'd check Facebook, and I was really into, I'm still into life, like um, pro-life, so I'd see these posts about abortion, and I'd comment, and I'd debate, and I'd post all these statistics, and um, I'm an Enneagram 8, by the way, same as Reverend James. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, I'd rack my brain over how to word these comments, like, perfectly, thinking that I was glorifying God. When... In reality, when I look back, I think he probably would have wanted my attention elsewhere. Think about that the next time you comment on an official Trinity meme page post. All of you. I see you. Uh, (laughs) Where does God want your focus? Where does God want your attention? And then where does he want your silence or maybe even your absence? Jesus, knowing the accusers had empty intentions, did not answer. Jesus protests for the truth using his silence. This brings us to the next reason for Jesus' silence, which is to fulfill scripture. Isaiah 53, seven reads, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is Old Testament. Jesus used silence as a tool for justice, and as a result, fulfills the law. So we see that Jesus is not just Jesus in the New Testament. He is the God of the Old Testament that had been anticipated for over a thousand years before his time. This continuity of prophecy and fulfillment from cover to cover of the Bible strengthened the early church and it feeds our faith today. So not only was his silence valuable solely in that moment, but it also elevated the value of his speech so that when he did answer, people listened Moving to verse 61 and 62, when the high priest asked Jesus with sarcasm, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? As if to say, are you the abandoned and lonely prisoner that's standing before me, really the long expected, prophecy fulfilling Messiah? Let's pause here and point out that people to this day, maybe even some of us in this room are asking that question. God's only son to be mocked and bruised and naked and shamed we sang this today. Why would God let his son be treated this way? Why his suffering? More on that later. But the events that follow are particularly meaningful because Jesus so far has surrounded his identity with a sword of secrecy. He forbids the cast out demons to make him known in Mark 1, 25 and 34. He asks those who he's healed and discipled not to spread his title as Messiah. So Jesus' response to the high priest is actually the first time that he directly acknowledges his identity, and he answers using Old Testament scripture. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. These words echo the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 17, verses 13 to 14. Are you still with me? I know it's a lot of scripture, but we're going to keep going here. So this is where the high priest is super dramatic and tears his clothing because of Jesus' apparent blasphemy. Now Jesus, having studied and memorized Old Testament scripture for his whole life, knew that the high priest would and could accuse him of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. But again, he chooses to fulfill the law as in Jeremiah 26, 11. Jesus spoke truth, knowing it would lead him to the cross because he knew this would please his father. How often do we refrain from speaking truth, truth that we know would please the Father? We just spoke on using silence as a tool for justice, but how often do we remain silent when we should actually speak? How many opportunities do we miss to make him smile, to uplift one another, to breathe life with our words, to bring hope with our words, and even to offer someone the living hope of eternal life with Jesus? Jesus speaks truth here in the face of death, not just with the threat of death, but with the knowledge that death will come when he speaks this. And yet the greatest threat that we face for sharing Jesus with people in North America is discomfort. Discomfort. Now I know it can sound cliche and sadly even a little bit taxing. I know this because before this year, I was like, God, I will sing for you. I will share my story for you. I will pray for you and serve for you and you name it. I'll bake for you and I'll sweep these blue mats and run around like a monkey before chapel just to give you an inch more of glory. But evangelize? That's not my calling. (laughs) Uh, Give that to another part of the body of Christ. But God said no to me. And he says no when you say no. He says no, I died for everyone you talk to. I died for your doormates and your roommate, for your family at home, I died for that lonely guy or girl in the collegium, your sports teammates, I died for that cashier that scans your food at Superstore, I died for every single person in the atrium that you walk past every day, so don't rob them of their life. Don't steal their chance to live the life that Jesus died for them to have. No, it's not your responsibility to force their relationship with God, but it is your responsibility to speak the truth. Not your truth, not Hell's truth, his truth. Now, I know for some of us here, countless students I actually know of who have come from different countries and cultures, they share Jesus with their non-believing family and friends. Kudos. We need to be more like you. Please teach us, because you are doing what Jesus did. You're speaking truth in the face of fear, in the face of discomfort, with the threat of losing family and support and even finances. We all know we can't come to Trinity on our own. No, you are speaking Father, Son, and Spirit truth. So after Jesus says the lines of truth that he knows will be used as evidence to nail him to the cross the guards take him, They spit on him, they cover his face, and they ask him to prophesy, challenging him to guess which of the guards was delivering staggering blows to his face and body. To spit in his face? Like, that's what this culture back in the day regarded as the most honorable part of the body. It was mockery, humiliation, and physical abuse. So back to the question, why would God will for his son to be treated this way? Why the suffering? Now, I'm not trying to answer uh, why suffering exists on earth. If you'd like to chat about that, we can grab coffee. I love talking about it. But um, rather, the question why is it that Jesus faces his suffering since he's a son of God? Jesus courageously faces his abusers because he knows that this is the plan that God has for him. And he knows this because even after praying in Gethsemane for this cup of death on a cross to be taken from him, he still faces the oppression. He suffers according to God's will so that the punishment for our sins can be taken upon Jesus Christ instead of us. Because the punishment for our sins is taken upon God's perfection in the form of Jesus, those who choose to follow him are bought into heaven. Jesus is called the Lamb with a capital L because no other animal sacrifice is necessary after him. There is no other blood that can cleanse us after his because we are made clean and reconciled to God again if we choose to accept this gift. So if God willed in this case, meaning he both allowed and intended for his very son to be ridiculed and judged and torn down physically and emotionally, what can this teach us about the experiences God may will for our own lives? not saying he desires for us to die like Jesus, no that price has been paid. But God's will for my life and for yours is not one that excludes suffering. It is not one that even promises earthly peace. For Christians, God promises his presence through the Holy Spirit and eternal life with him after death. In Matthew 28:22, Jesus says to his followers, "I will be with you always to the end of the world." But sometimes, we forget that his presence is not promised alongside blessings. Alongside financial providence, success, physical safety, or even healing. Because God's presence being with Jesus didn't translate to softer blows on the cross. But the unbreakable strength of a father who was with Jesus when they covered his face who was with him for each agonizing step up to the hill where he was crucified. Now, I love Jeremiah 29:11. 11 This was my grade 8 and grade 12 graduation quote. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, and it goes on to list other blessings. Sometimes we can take this verse out of context and believe that God promises earthly comfort, success, and painlessness. Now, don't get me wrong. God blesses people. He gives good, good gifts. But this promise was made to the Israelites as God was calling them into exile, into surrender to Babylon for the next 70 years. Now, God is with you. He does heal. He redeems. But he does not promise a comfortable life. He didn't promise that before Jesus. He didn't promise that for Jesus. And he doesn't promise that after Jesus. So we look at Jesus Christ in Mark 1465, and we see that these are the plans that God had for His Son. Jesus spoke bold truth and lived a life of suffering. And if speaking truth and enduring suffering are a part of our Savior's story, and we are called to follow His example, then they are a part of our story as well. Let's pray. Fearless Father, we adore you. You are holy, almighty, gracious Redeemer. You went through so much pain for us so that we can have a chance to be with you in heaven. We confess that we have sinned against you and that we forget the sacrifices that you make, that you made and still make for us. Thank you for being an example. Thank you that we can look to you for strength in silence and in speech. Thank you that you've given us courage to speak truth in every situation that we may feel trapped in. God, would you give us your words for people around us and your resilience to face the suffering that this world brings. Father, we ask that if anyone is here today who is looking up at your face for the first time or for the first time in a long time, that you would shine upon them and that you would bring people to speak into their lives, that you would do your thing and redeem them. (laughs) Have your hand over these students and watch over them as they go into a final week before reading break. Amen. Go in his presence.
0: Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged, encouraged, and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.